Bloody Elbow presents the sixth round post-fight show, which gives you an event rundown and full analysis of the bouts that took place on the current weekend's UFC event, complete with hot takes, possible next fights, and reactions to the overall card. Paid Bloody Elbow podcast Substack subscribers will hear bonus content, if available, at the end of the broadcast. Be sure to subscribe at bloodyelbow.substack.com for our newsletter and at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com for our podcast network. Follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloodyelbowblog, and as always, on bloodyelbow.com. Thanks for listening. Here are your Bloody Elbow fight analysts. Hey everybody, welcome back to the 6th Round Post-Fight Show with me, Zane Simon, and my co-host once again joining me in lieu of Eddie Mercado, who is off partying it up in the Dominican Republic for karate combat. Dane Fox, thank you for joining me once again here for the 6th Round. Just after the conclusion of Noche UFC, their Mexican Independence Day event, going down at the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, Nevada. And just some absolute instant fuckery from to, to close the show. Like that, that, there's nothing else to talk about really on this card other than that main event. Which let, was, let's clarify. Let's clarify. It, it wasn't the main event itself. The the main event was a fun fight. It was a it was great fight. Might be the best fight of uh, Shevchenko's, the most fun fight of Shevchenko's career. Yes, yes. But when when you say fuckery, you are absolutely correct, because while the fight itself was outstanding, the judges decided to go and and piss all over everybody's fun for the night with uh, the the scorecards that were turned in. Yeah, I mean, it's really just one judge. It's Mike Bell. We, We got to find out. So, like, you know, I know numbers don't tell the whole story here and all that, but like you can go look at the stats for this fight and see what made it such an interesting, fascinating, competitive fight. Like, you know, Alexic, you, you look and uh, Alexic Grasso, Valentin Shevchenko, they land almost the same number of strikes in the first round or of significant strikes in the first round with Shevchenko holding, getting a takedown and some significant control time. Most people. Scored that round for Shevchenko. Round two. Grasso really outlands Shevchenko big, knocks her down, gets controlled a bunch. But it was really hard to uh, overcome. You know, Shevchenko got knocked down so hard she went ass over tea kettle. Yep. So, it and it, it's like she went on to get, and get three minutes control time, so... Grasso did herself no favors there, but it was still around that most everybody out there, you score 10-9 Alexa Grasso. Yeah, no yeah, problem. No, you, had to, you had to give the uh, the damage far more yeah. uh, credit than the control, yes. Exactly. No problem. Round three, you know, four strikes for Grasso landed, nine strikes for Shevchenko landed. Shevchenko gets one takedown, rides Grasso for three minutes of the round. Uh, has a, a submission attempt. Once again, you know, not not a terribly hard round to score. Not uh, super close to finishing Grasso, although that it was a deep guillotine. It was a it was a good, very good guillotine. So I wouldn't even say not. You know, uh, she she maybe even you could argue came close to finishing Grasso, but a very easy Shevchenko round to score. Yep. 10-9 Valentina Shevchenko. We've got a 29-28 Valentina Shevchenko. Pretty clear as day so far. Yes. Round four is a very hairy round. That is a tough round to score. They're landing about the same number of significant strikes. They both have a takedown. They both get a little bit of control. And at the end of the round, which she didn't get credit for, Grasso even goes for a heel hook. Yes. And the, you know, the way a lot of people skewed it was there was a moment in there where Grasso landed, landed like four, three or four really hard knees in a clinch off a stuffed takedown straight to Shevchenko's head. Shevchenko was like brushing the mat with her hand, but Grasso did good to horse her arm up. And it's a two hands down state rule anyway in Nevada. 
So it was, they were legal strikes. They were probably the most impactful strikes of the round. Neither fighter got really badly hurt, though. Both of them had some good offense. Very close, sticky round. If you scored that for Grasso, you've got a dead-even fight. If you scored that for Shevchenko, you've got Shevchenko up 3-1 at this point. Now, round five is here. And for the first two and three and a half minutes of it, we're getting a pretty close kickboxing match that Shevchenko seems to be winning. Grasso's movement's a little more labored. She's letting Shevchenko get off first. Shevchenko has gotten more comfortable with with Grasso in her southpaw stance. And also just Grasso isn't, she's not really picking up her feet as well. So Shevchenko's getting a little more time to dart in and out and find her strikes. It's it's a pretty solid, it seemed like a pretty solid Shevchenko round for three and a half minutes. Not a huge, huge round. Just pretty solid. Yes. Then Shevchenko goes for a headlock hip toss and basically just dumps Grasso onto her back, on, onto Shevchenko's back. Yep. Throws herself to the mat with Shevchenko, with Grasso on her back. And Grasso starts cracking her with big shots from back mount gets a rear naked choke attempt, you know, is just doing all, has all sorts of control and damage for a minute and a half. And this is a round that Grasso was losing for three and a half minutes. She never gets particularly close to finishing Shevchenko, but it was clearly, even given Shevchenko's winning, you know, earlier success that round, you have to skew the the best offense that round to Grasso. She landed. She did the damage. She had the big moment that came closest to finishing the fight that round. Yep. It's a ten nine round for Alexa Grasso. No no controversy about her winning it. So you have two scoring options here. You either have Shevchenko one three and four which gives her the 48-47, which was what one judge had. Or you have you have Grasso, 2, 4, and 5, which gives her the 48-47 decision, which another judge had. Yep. What you absolutely do not have under any circumstances whatsoever at any time, in any way, in any jurisdiction, is Valentina Shevchenko one, three, and four, and a ten-eight round five for Alexa Grasso to make it a forty-seven-forty-seven split draw. Yeah, that yeah. is that ten-eight. Just that. I'm I'm typically of the opinion that there needs to be more 10-8s in the sport. Sure. That there was not a 10-8 in that fight at all. She she lost three and a half minutes of that round. She yep. stormed back in a minute and a half and did enough in that minute and a half to win the round. That yep. is impressive in and of itself. Yeah. But you yep. can't give a 10-8 for that. But, um. I, I know that it drew a uh, a lot of boos, um, but uh, Shevchenko said that she felt that the judges were were pressured to um, score in favor of the Mexican fighters. You know, she said it's UFC Noche. Yeah, yeah. There, there may be an argument that's what influenced round five because the crowd was absolutely going nuts when Grasso was able to to take Shevchenko's back. And I so, mean, it was it was a monumental moment. This yes, fight, it, you know, if you're asking me. This fight should have been a pretty clear 48-47 Alexa Grasso. I don't think that's a very hard scorecard to come up with. That was like my said, score too. Grasso had the biggest moment in round four. She had the biggest moment in round five. She had the biggest moment in round two. Yes. Those were all the damage moments, and that's what should score the rounds. That's three rounds. 
to two rounds that Shevchenko very convincingly took with control. Yeah, but if Mike Bell gave Grasso that last round, a 10-8 round, I think that Shevchenko was correct when she said that the crowd played a role in that because, I, like I said, I, I don't see how anybody can give that a 10-8 round unless they're absolutely, oh, yeah, the crowd's totally into this. This is a huge moment. She's just pounding her. Yeah. Like you said, that just completely eliminates the first three and a half it's, minutes where Shevchenko was in control. She wasn't dominating, but she controlled the tempo. She controlled the pace. And she was, she continued to just land her jab in the perfect spot that uh, Grasso's head was, was snapping back slightly with pretty much every punch. She just, and like you said, she was flat footed. Mm-hmm. It was firmly Shevchenko's round. All of a sudden the momentum switch uh, changes, but it, not to the point where he was a 10-8, like Shevchenko no. would have had to have been on, on death's door, essentially, just barely surviving to, for that beating in the last minute and a half to come yeah, in she, with close to a 10-8. It wasn't. Shevchenko jumped up and put her arms up when that round ended. Like Exactly. Yeah, she got put in some bad spots, and she got beat up enough to lose the round. Yep. But she was not – there was no – at no point was she close to getting finished. And – you know, at the very least for a 10-8, to me, you have to have either multiple, you, you can have a, a round that was kind of even, and then one fighter almost gets finished multiple times. Like, oh, they're brawling, and this guy gets dropped three times. I'll say, yeah, that's a 10-8 round to me. You know? Yep, yep. No, or, I, I think that's accurate. Yeah, or you can have a situation where one fighter is incredibly dominant for the whole round, even if they don't come close to finishing. So, like, we had that fight earlier in the night. Uh, what was it? Knutson and Mann. Oh, yeah. Knutson and Mann, where, like, uh, Marnik Mann never got that close to being finished, but she just got beat up for whole rounds at a time. Mm-hmm. And judge, one judge gave... Uh, Knutson three 10 8 rounds in that fight. Now, that's a little generous even for me, but I'm okay with that too. That's another way to get a 10 8 round. You either nearly finish someone several times or you absolutely crushingly dominate them for, for the whole time without coming, even if you don't come close to finishing them. Those are both fine ways to get a 10 8. But just having a big moment where you switch, you change momentum, like that, that is no criteria at any time. Yeah. yeah. So, so it, based on that, like I feel like we should have Shevchenko as a champion, not because you know, I, like I said, I'm with you. I scored it for Grasso. Yeah, but because Marcel giving Grasso that ten eight in the round last round, no, that's BS. Yeah, no, because it, it, that, that's part of kind of part of my problem here is that you know with with uh, Shevchenko's statement is that there's that little bit of sour grapes here, where you're coming around and you're being like, I would have won had it not been for this crowd, and it's like, yeah, but I think you lost that fight, you know. I'm like, like yeah. I said, I'm I, no, 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 I, I, I hear what you said. I'm just saying. Uh, it's not that I'm saying that Shevchenko should have won. No, it's, I know that. I, I wanted uh, a clear, definitive outcome that at least made sense. Yeah. I, and I've seen fights where there's a draw, and I'm like, okay, I can see that. This was not one of them. No, this is not one of them. This is, you know, this is to me, um, you know, I know he's not the most thrilling person to li- listen to in a booth of giving explanations. But this is a point. This this to me is the kind of thing where John McCarthy is usually exactly right on this stuff, and it's just like, no, your job as a judge is to be able to split hairs and to be able to decide winners, you know. Mm-hmm. And this to me is just this is terrible judging. This is nonsense. And yeah, I I mean I don't think Shevchenko won it, but I can totally sympathize with her point that. Uh, if perhaps the crowd had not been so crazy for everything that Grasso did, then maybe the judges wouldn't have seen it. Uh, seen that that one judge wouldn't have seen that one ten eight round. I still think, you know, it's just it's just crazy to me. It's just 
Well, you know, the the best way to put it is, uh, even if uh, Shevchenko is right, well, that just means that 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 judge is even worse than what we thought because. As a judge, you're supposed to know not to let the crowd in. Yeah. You have to stick strictly with what you see and yeah. not what you hear. Yeah. Well, I, I, so I guess in some way, it's weird because, like, I'm very sympathetic to Shevchenko being pissed off about this. And I do honestly think, like, this fight was awesome. We should run back a third one of these. Especially because, like, you have both uh, oh, Fiora, or Fiora. And, and uh, Blanchfield, they're both coming off really lackluster wins. Mm-hmm. Like, they were just not that impressive in victory last time out. Furo got uh, outworked in the last round by a one-handed Rose Namajunas. And Blanchfield had to basically fight for her life against Tyler Santos to scrape out a control-based decision. Yeah, one of the uglier fights that we've seen in recent memory, but it it did the job. So put them together, make them fight to find out which one of them is a top contender, and in the meantime, do this fight again. Agreed. Like, because I'm I'm split where I'm at the same time. Like, I'm glad Grasso gets to keep her title. Because I think she won this fight, but I have all the sympathy for Shevchenko being like, I would have won this fight had this judge not been t- in- terribly incompetent. So, yeah, no, I, I think that's the ideal scenario. You know, even yeah. put them on the same card and you can have a, a replacement ready should there yeah, be. Exactly. So, it, yeah, it's. It's almost like the MMA gods are telling us this is what they want to have happen at this point because that's the only reason that I can see anything positive coming out of this draw. It's like, oh, okay, well, that at least sets the stage for uh, what we should see happen at this point. But, you know, at the same time, who knows? The the EOC doesn't always do the most obvious things. So, Yeah. Um, but at least, you know, at least this was an awesome fight. That's really the thing that, like... You know, otherwise, if we're talking about the fight beyond just me breaking out scoring or whatever, the big things that I saw that were uh, really interesting were Grasso trying to go back to orthodox for this fight. Clearly, it was sort of like, oh, I did Southpaw last time. Well, I'm going to switch it up again. And that that confused Shevchenko early. So she was like, okay, I'm going to switch it up again. I'm going to come out orthodox this time. And Shevchenko it was immediately like, oh, thank God. This is what all your fight footage looks like. This is what all your tape looks like. I recognize this. I'll just start blasting you with body kicks. And all fight, Shevchenko was infinitely more comfortable with Shevchenko, with Grasso in an orthodox stance than Southpaw. And Grasso, as a result, had to drop back to Southpaw for large stretches to stay competitive standing and i i think something else that's worth uh mentioning with regards to the fight no spinning kicks from shevchenko yeah no she didn't spin even once and if that uh headlock throw that she tried late was any sign she should not in any circumstances whatsoever give grasso access to her back yeah yeah the the fact that um uh she she didn't have a, a whole lot of success with those uh, throws this time around and that's that's something that's been uh, part of her bread and butter yeah uh, her title run uh, and it just seems like given how grasso's been able to get all these reads on her uh, the fight game is starting to catch up to shevchenko you know she was such a dominant champion for so long it's it looks like the rest of the divisions well at the very least you have that kind of dominance for that kind of duration and everybody's training for you they're spending yes. you know they're spending years just figuring out exactly what it is you do so that they can try and challenge that. And uh, it's just, so yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that's definitely showing, I think that's definitely showing for Grasso and it made this fight fascinating and it made it fascinating to me too, that Shevchenko still didn't really know how to handle Grasso in Southpaw, despite seeing it for the whole last fight. Once she, once Grasso's feet slowed down late, she had more success. But it was still in Southpaw, a right hand, a right hook from Southpaw that that sent Shevchenko ass over tea kettle. 
and uh, it was still the position where Shevchenko's jab just kind of vanished for long stretches. Yep. And she had a lot of trouble picking up Grasso when Grasso was was pumping the right hand lead. So it it it's fascinating to see like Shevchenko didn't really she didn't the, the big thing she did is stop spinning. That was her big adjustment. Yes. But she didn't really adjust to anything else that Grasso was doing. And Grasso didn't get she didn't have any preparation or any any ability to stop the takedowns at all. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I and I have to admit I was kind of surprised at um, uh, Shevchenko struggling with her so much. You, you know, I just figured, okay, this will be your second camp around. She yep. she should be hyper focused now that she's lost her belt. I, I kind of expected her to come out uh, as a ferocious animal, and like you said, she, there were long stretches where she was kind of tentative, didn't quite know what to do with Grasso. So I, you know, I it's no guarantee we're going to get the third match, but me believing that it's going to happen. I, I have no clue what to expect from Chip. Yeah. yeah. It'll be, it'll be fascinating because it, it just, it kind of feels like neither fighter did a lot to adapt after their last fight. They just had a closer fight. They just had a close closer fight this time around because Grasso was trying stuff that didn't work that she didn't do last time. Mm-hmm. And Shevchenko was getting more opportunities off of that and was more determined herself to wrestle more and to just keep Grasso on the mat as much as she could. Yeah. So really good fight, really fun fight, really interesting fight, terrible decision to come out of it, but maybe we'll get a third one because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully something good can come of it. Otherwise, Jack Della Maddalena, Kevin Holland, and uh, this was a, this was a solid solid fight. It was um, it's kind of, I mean it's weird because both guys are so dangerous and both guys are skilled enough that you kind of, you know the crowd got really mad because it kind of felt like a simmer of a fight. It felt like one of those fights that's just never at a boil. Yeah, but watching it, so much of the action was distinct enough that I was, you know, at the time it was kind of, if this was a simmer, it was at the simmer right at the, it was it was a low boil is what I would say. Like, it was like, a fight that was much more like, no, these guys are just constantly doing things that are really kind of, you know, really kind of very effective, and they're doing it at a really high pace. And they're just not hurting each other enough to change anything. They they both threw out uh, just enough volume that they never let one or the other get into any sort of a rhythm. Yeah, I mean, Kevin Holland especially, he threw 350 strikes that fight. Yeah, yeah. And, now, um, Della Maddalena had a couple of nice combinations, which yeah. I think is what ultimately separated him on the scorecards to get the win. Yeah. But even then, you know, it, it just never felt like either one of them truly got into a flow just because they continually interrupted one another with that and, you know, made slight adjustments here, slight adjustments there. And for Holland, it was just about touching him up, but he, he didn't offer much power behind that touch up either. So, yeah, I mean, I think Holland, you know, I, I think he did well, honestly, to because he, he, you know, I think he he came out early trying to be uh, a little bit more aggressive mm-hmm. with Della Maddalena. Certainly he was doing well establishing his establishing the pocket, which was a lot of what the lighter volume was for, was to give Maddalena a constant, you know, here is the here is the line that you have to cross. And when you cross it, I'll try to meet you with something heavier. But when he tried to meet when he tried to meet Della Maddalena with heavier shots early in the fight, he just got out punched a lot. And so it became more of a thing for him as he went on to just try and keep that, that wall more firmly established to keep the lighter, the lighter strikes at an even higher output to create more 
offense that Madalena that Della Madalena would have to think about so that he couldn't get inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I don't. It would have been nice to see him try and wrestle more. He tried two takedowns and didn't get either of them. But this is, you know, Della Madalena's somebody who, when his, you know, Hafez in his last fight went through a takedown progression with him, would often jump guard if you got past the first, you know, if you could get past the first shot stuff and turn a corner, go from single to double or double to single and try and twist Della Madalena, he would often at that point just jump on, try to jump on a uh, a headlock or jump on a guillotine. Mm-hmm. So it probably would have behooved Holland to try and make a little bit more of that happen. But otherwise, in, far, in terms of the striking battle, I kind of think Holland kind of he got caught up having the only kind of fight he could have with somebody that's a bigger, more technical puncher inside than he is. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you were you were talking about uh, you think it would have behooved Holland to to maybe go for more takedowns. I felt the same thing with Della Maddalena because Holland's takedown defense, yes, it's improved since he's gone to one seventy, but it's still not rock solid by any means, and he he tends to spend a lot of time. Uh, playing jujitsu off his back too often. Sure. I, I I thought both of them would have benefited from it, but you know, either way, you know, yeah. it, it it was like you said, it was a good fight. Um, it was a good fight. Don't tell that to the Vegas crowd, but no. it was just one of those things where I think both men probably ended up feeling like they were having the success they were meant to have. Because I say for Holland, he kind of was like, oh, okay, well, what I need to do is keep a wall of offense in front of this guy and outwork him. Yeah. And he did, you know, he, he out threw Della Madalena two to one yeah. in the last two rounds of that fight and outlanded him by a solid margin in both of those rounds. He just, he couldn't put the, the oomph behind his shots at Della Madalena. Yeah. Did. So, and, yeah. and for Della Madalena, he's out there and he's like, well, these aren't hurting me and I'm landing the bigger shots. So I'm getting to have the fight I want too. And when you're in that situation, like, you know, both guys are kind of having the success they think they need to have to win. Yeah, it's it's uh, almost like a, a oh god, Masvidal. Masvidal yeah. would have those fights back in the day where it's like, well, you're yeah. not hurting me, so I'm winning. Yeah, it's yeah, exactly. It's probably more on the corner at that point to tell their fighter more, you know, be a little bit more like, you know. You don't. You, we don't know what what the judges are seeing. We can't be sure you're winning this fight. You should probably try to do something a little bit bigger. Yep. But is what it is. It was it was a fun fight. Like I said, I don't really have the complaints that the Vegas crowd did. It was a it was a high simmer or a low boil. It was not just the like, oh, these two are just kind of pecking away at each other with a few strikes every now and then, and we're never really kicking it into you know, dangerous territory. It was, it was a solidly contested fight all the way through. Yep. Uh, let's see. That brings us to Raul Rosas Jr., Terrence Mitchell. And this was just a setup fight with Mitchell. Mitchell was there to get stomped and he got stomped. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, there, uh, at this point, um, Rosas reminds me very much of the way that the UFC handled Sage Northcutt early on. Um, yeah. They're they're going to feed him fighters that they they think he can beat for the next little while while he develops, um, and and good on him. You know, Rosas looked very good, but uh, we'll see yeah. with the Sage Northcutt thing though, because one of the big things that they would do with Sage Northcutt is they'd feed him a couple of fighters that he should really beat, and then they'd be like, oh yeah, and okay, let's try you against another veteran or another guy who's kind of good, and that guy would just win. And then they would have to go back to the feeder. It was like, it was weird with Sage because by the time he actually really got honestly pretty decent, they were done work to trying to work with him. Yep, they, they'd given up. Yeah. I, so, I, I, I hope they don't do the same thing with Rosas. Like, yeah. don't get me wrong. It, it's kind of cool that, okay, yeah, he's 18. He's in the UFC. That's cool. But should he be? And, and that's the big problem that yeah. I have. I, I don't want to see him take the same that Northcutt did. I mean, you know, this performance was good. It's he did exactly what he was supposed to do to to be able to avoid that fate. But 
Sage had several performances like this too. So yeah. that's and why I get worried about it. Rosa still got caught a lot yep. in this fight by what I would say in Mitchell is relative to the rest of his division, maybe the worst fighter in the UFC. Like, yeah. You know, there are there are people there are fighters in other divisions. There, there's a heavyweight that's worse than Terrence Mitchell. Technique, technique <laughs> for technique, or a you know whatever. But that rel- the bantamweight division is it is just an infinitely better division to be this kind of guy. Yep. And it's going to be a lot harder even than it was to find welterweights for Sage or lightweights for Sage. It's going to be a lot harder to find consistent bantamweights for Rosas that are not actually really dangerous. Yeah. So, yeah, this is... I, it, it wor- I will say this. Giving him a setup fight where he was supposed to stomp somebody, it absolutely worked. My, I was running our Twitter feed for this. It was full of people being like, man, that kid is for real. He just blew that dude away. Can you believe that? Look at those skills. He's a serious, and it's just like, I mean, I don't, you know, he's, he's a, he's athletic and he's young and he's got a good grappling game, but he's really raw and everything outside of his grappling game is still really raw and fighting a dude like this is the level of fight he should be taking and it should just be happening. Usually it would be happening in a, in a, you know, in a smoker at at like a casino resort somewhere. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So yeah, we'll see what happens with roses. This, this got the hype stoked back up. It got Rosa's confidence built back up, and we'll just see if he if he starts walking himself and saying, you know, I I want a bigger challenge next time out, and they throw him at, you know, just somebody like uh, I don't know, let's see who's who, who's just a random bantamweight in that division. They throw him at like Dan Argetta, yeah, or uh, you know. Gaston Boyanos or you know just somebody like that then that's not a huge step up from here you know and it's still a dude who might just mop the floor with him again because Christian Quinones was not any kind of you know he was on nobody's radar as a hot prospect when he absolutely schooled Rosas last time out. Yeah. So. Uh, oh, Christian Rodriguez. Oh, Christian Rodriguez. That's right. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's just you got to. It'll be interesting. It'll be interesting yeah, to see what happens. I, I'm rooting for the kid, but I just uh, it just it scares me that he's at this point already. Yeah. And actually, I'm not really rooting for the kid because he's, you know, very Gen Z and I'm very much becoming an old man. (laughs) Actually, he might even be too young for Gen Z. He might be almost like Gen Alpha. That's true. That's true. Like, what? What's Gen Alpha? I had to check right here. Uh, They were born. Okay, no. Uh, starting the early 2010s, so no. Gen Alpha would okay. be like 13 or 14 right now. But that he's still like, man, he's still right on the dividing line, right? Yep. yep. But yeah. Oh, I hope this doesn't derail him. No, it won't. It, it, he'll... No, not not this fight, just yeah, but the UFC this early. For, I, I'm always worried about fighters that start turn pro in their teens it's always it always feels like a mistake to me but we'll see yeah. it's something uh, that we frequently talk about so yeah yep. yeah all right that brings us to a lightweight bout daniel zellhuber christos Giagos, and um a great finish for zellhuber in a fight that he was having a lot more trouble in than he should have honestly like 
do we attribute that to Zell Huber having a bad night or Yagos being better than what people generally give him credit for, though? Uh, well, Jago, he's doing, Jagos is doing a lot of training, I think, at uh, Killcliff these days. So he is getting some good striking training. There's probably a, a little bit of extra, you know, uh, sneakiness there. But it's, I think it's also just an experience on the Zell Hoover side. Like, you are six foot one, or is he even, he's six, he might be six foot three. Like, let me see. Zell Hoover typology. I'm doing more searching than I thought I would here, but, uh, Six one according to UFC stats. Yeah, six foot one with a seventy seven inch reach. You know, you've got like five inches on your opponent here. Yeah, five and a half inches on your opponent here. There's no reason that that Christos Jagos should be getting off first in all of the striking exchanges. But yeah. for most of this fight, that was what was happening. Jagos would just leap into the pocket, and he crushed Zell Huber early in this fight. Oh yeah, no, knocked him out. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It looked like he was going to get an early finish again. So yeah, um, so you know, with your with Zelhuber, like you're you're fast, you've got a good chin, you've got all this size. You know, it, we're talking we're talking about this with the Kevin Holland against Jack Della Maddalena. and one of the things Holland did that was very necessary and worked very well from him for him was to establish the pocket behind your range tools. You set the edge of the pocket with a jab and with your kicking game. You don't let somebody with a five-inch reach disadvantage of you on you tell you what the what striking range is going to be, you know? And yeah, I, as the fight went on, he started to do that, and, like, that was the point where he got the, you know, he started to hurt Tiago. So it's just on him to to kind of figure that out earlier. Yeah, I, I think part of it was Yagos also has a history of, of kind of fading after the first round, round and a half sure or whatever. But yeah, I, and I think another part of it is Zell Hoover may not be comfortable with, with pressure because uh, they yeah. talked about him making his UFC debut on the same weekend last year. And he crapped the bed in his UFC last UFC debut last year with Trey Ogden. And it clearly meant a lot. Getting this win clearly meant a lot to him. So, yeah, yeah it could be a, a, a nerves thing. He certainly looked a lot more comfortable against Lando Venata handling Venata dropping into the pocket against him than he did yep. against Giagos this time. Yep. But, um, yeah, we'll see. It was, it, you know, at the end, it was a violent finish. It was a... Uh, you know, it showed off Zell Hoover's toughness and his his ability to stick with a with a fight and find his way into it. But it was it was a rough early going in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but hey, you know, he got himself an extra fifty k out of it. So yeah, that's right. Our our uh, producer just dropped the bonuses in Zell Hoover, Rosas, and Kapalov and Godinez all picked up performance bonuses. No fight of the night, which that's BS. The main event should have gotten. Fired. Yeah, the main event was really good, honestly. Like that was Wait. a great fight. Oh, there was a fifth bonus, so uh, Campbell also got one. Oh, okay. Well, that's something. I mean, I'm I'm happy to see lower down fighters getting paid because the, the main event fighters, you know, maybe that should have been fight of the night. They both put on a great fight, but they also both have sizable paychecks coming to them. No, I, I, I agree with you. I, so, I, I'm not saying that uh, I, I uh, don't want to see yeah. the lower guys not get the money, but just that was 100% worthy of the recognition. But yeah, let's put it in. Yep. All right. Uh, for that, Kyle Nelson, Fernando Padilla. This was one of the more controversial scorecards of the night. I am personally, A, I'm really loving watching Kyle Nelson not uh, shoot himself in the foot and blow his own game apart because mm -hmm. when he doesn't do that he fights a really nicely controlled fight so a i'm, I'm happy about that i've always liked kyle nelson's skill set it's always just been a thing where he fights with so much tension that he would often just melt down after a round uh the second thing here is it was really nice to see judges reward a fighter fighting off the back foot and finding counters because 
a lot of what Padilla did in the the first or in the last two rounds of this fight was show a lot of strikes and not land a lot of strikes. Yeah, no, he. I gave uh, Padilla the first round. Um, yep. I, I felt that he landed the more effective strikes there. Second round, I thought was pretty clearly Nelson, and the third round was close. Uh, yeah, I, I, for me, it was a, a coin flip. I, I think I probably yes, I did give it to Padilla, but at the same time, I had no problem with it going to Nelson. Yeah, my 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 read. I scored at twenty nine twenty eight Padilla, but I even said when I dropped it on Twitter. I am giving round three to Padilla because I believe that's what the judges are going to say. I'm scoring <laughs> what I expect the judges to say because they tend to ignore the kind of work Nelson does on the back foot countering and Padilla had the pressure and that tends to fool a lot of people. And he had the, so this is the the argument against the, the, the vocal crowd being a factor, at least with better judges. Or what? Or was Mike Bell on this? Did he judge this one too? Let's see. He judged it, but he he gave a reasonable scorecard. He wasn't the questionable one this time around. So he he judged that fight. Yeah. And he got it right. Yep. It was uh, Sal Diamato that left a scratch in our head in that one. But that's amazing. So it didn't the the the, the noise didn't affect him then. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's. Anyway, uh, so I was happy to see, yeah, I scored it for Padilla, but I scored it for Padilla thinking much like uh, we had John McDessie against um, oh, yeah. Jack Della Maddalena. No, 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 no. Yeah, uh, Jamie, uh, no, no, no. Uh, Jamie Malarkey. Jamie Malarkey. Yeah, no, that was a robbery. Yeah, much, much like that fight, I just thought, okay, judges will, you know, this was a very John McDessie kind of performance from Kyle Nelson. And I expected him to get un- to, to get passed over just like that. So I'm happy to see Nelson get the win. And I feel like the 29-28 was totally fine and justified. And yeah, that 30-27 scorecard was a little, little weird out there. All right. That brings us to a woman's strawweight bout, Lupita Godinez, Elise Reed, and... Lupita Godinez having one of those two types of fight she ha- fights she has. She's either incredibly dominant or weirdly one note and stuck and can't find figure out how to do anything. And this is the incredibly dominant side. So it's, she looks uh, like a title contender out there. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I was going to say it, it's not a good night when the only thing you can compliment Reed on is how freaking tough she was uh, yeah. by getting out of all those submission attempts. But, oh, yeah, no, Loopy, like you said, she looked like a title contender. And I I, I struggle to say that because Loopy is undersized even for the strawweight division. But if she continues to perform like she is right here, she very well could end up challenging for the title uh, Despite my reservations, she's got. I mean, she's six. She or she's five two. It's not big, but you know, it's it's not as tiny as it could be. It's it's not Tisha Torres or Loma Lookboon me out there, or Marnik Man, or Marnik Man. Um, and she's got the she's got the bulk the 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 bulk you know the actual muscle to go with it. So I, I'm I'm reasonably high on her potential as a title challenger. Except that I, you know, I'm still, I'm still just not sure that she's past that Angela Hill, Cynthia Calvillo point yet, where she had these fights against these women where her wrestling didn't work and her striking just got caught in one stage that she could never advance from. Now, she looked a lot better against Emily Ducote, but Ducote is a bit of a... Uh, slow-paced um, underperformer herself. Yeah. So yeah. I have seen, like, this is the kind of performance that Godinez had against Ariani Carnalossi, and that was just... The, those performances from her are shockingly impressive. They are absurdly dominant. This fight against Elise Reed, absurdly dominant. I hope that that is what she can continue to put together because when she does it, it's 
it's great. I just don't, I don't know if I'm entirely trusting it, but I want to be. I want to see the, her 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 run up the division. I just want. It's going to be interesting to see what happens when she gets thrown into the heart of the the top fifteen. Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of thinking she should fight Tabitha Ricci next. You took the words out of my mouth. That's actually exactly what I was going to say. Um, because I feel like both of them are roughly the same size. They're both on the small yep. size. Both of them are ground specialists, but in different ways too. And neither one of them have any reservations about uh, throwing fisticuffs. So I, I think that would be a hell of a fun fight. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. And it would be fun too, because Ricci's got a great grappling game. And uh, Godinez has a great wrestling game. Yep. And they're both willing to throw with power standing. So it just seems like it'd be a real solid scrap to see which of them can turn their turn, turn, start turning their success into a run at the top because mm -hmm. they both have the athletic ability to get there, but their games have been a little hit and miss, a little raw in the past. Oh yeah. No, they're, they're inexperienced uh, in MMA has uh, still been showing, but as they go along, you know, they're, they're yeah. still rounding out some of their edges. Uh, perfect time to match up the two, if you ask me. Yep. I agree. All right. That brings us to a middleweight fight, Roman Kapalov, Josh Fremd. And uh, yeah, this was just a one-sided chip kicking. Uh, yep. Fremd did, he tried early on, you know, he, he got the idea right and he got the meta right, which is I'm big, I'm long, throw a lot of strikes. That's what I've got to do. But when you're in there against somebody who's just a much better striker than you, that throwing a lot also just means you give them a lot to work with. And yep. for like... A minute, the first minute, you're like, oh, Frem's kind of competitive. Second minute, you're like, oh, Frem's starting to get hit a little. Third minute, it's like, okay, he's really getting hit. Yep. And just yeah. that just kept going for uh, nine minutes and 40 seconds until he got crushed with a body shot that sent him to the mat, at which point he was already just a complete bloody mess. Yeah. And, and that final body shot did not look like it was all that bad, but he had just taken such a beating up to that point. Yeah. With everything that Hoppy Love threw at him. It was, yeah. Like you said, it was, if it wasn't for the, uh, the curtain jerker of the night, this would have been the shit kicking of the night for sure. Well, maybe yeah. not with Loopy, but Fremd looked a lot worse than Elise Reed did at the end. How about that? There, yeah. There were several fights on this card that were booked to be, dramatically one-sided and ended up dramatically one-sided. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I I can't... Th this was one of them. Re at least Reed Lupita Godinez was one of them. Yep. And uh, Mitchell Roses was actually not as one-sided as you'd think with the 54-second knockout, but <laughs> it ended up... It did its job. But, hey, uh, you know, credit to Copy Love. He looks like he's yep. uh, turning into a hell of a dark horse in the middleweight division. He is. Um, not just four straight wins, but four straight finishes. So, Be being the predictable soul that I am, I want to see him fight uh, Jun Young Park because I want to see everybody at middleweight fight Jun Young Park. <laughs> um, um, he uh, he filled uh, he originally filled in for for Chris Curtis, and I wouldn't mind seeing what was he was originally booked for in the, on this card with Anthony Hernandez. I think that would be fun. Yeah, sure. I would. I would love to see him against Anthony Hernandez. I'd love to see him against Chris Curtis. I'd love to see him against uh, even even somebody like just Mark Andre Barrio or mm -hmm. you know uh, somebody else in the middle of that division. Who else did I have out there? Uh, Greg Rodriguez, Michael Alexajic. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. There's a lot of options in that division. There are. Yeah, I think he's he could he could scratch the bottom of the top fifteen right now, which would be somebody like Hernandez or Curtis, yep. or there are four or five dudes who are just floating around right in the middle of middleweight right now that are dangerous and fun that I would love to see. Because the problem for me is really like Kapilov looked awesome here. 
he looked good in his last fight, but those two fights are him scraping the absolute bottom of the middleweight barrel. Like Josh Fremd is probably he's you know bottom five of middleweights right now. No, to Coffee Love's credit, you know he was he was attempting to fill in, and Hernandez would have been that step up that we were. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm just saying it is a little hard to me to be like, you know, oh people are talking like Kapilov needs a top ranked fighter next. It's like it would be nice if he could just face. A tough guy next. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, I want to give him a little bit credit. I wouldn't say quite give him a a ranked uh, person quite yet, or maybe Curtis would be something, but, you know, somebody who's scratching it, like you said, would be ideal because he is doing what he's supposed to do. He's beating these people that are at the uh, bottom end of the barrel. Yeah. Um, You can't argue against if you're going to, if you're going to get matched up with the guy who's not on your level, absolutely trucking them is the way to handle it. So. And that's what he's doing, yep. All right. That brings us to a... Oh, where was I? A flyweight bout. Edgar Chires, Daniel Lacerda, and... I mean... Okay. Grab your arm. I get that this is... A, I get. I think the no contest is the right thing to do. Yes. I feel a little bit like with Lacerda, it's a little bit of the Iwan Kudalaba thing against uh, Ankalaev, Magomed Ankalaev, where it's just like, yeah, sure, maybe you weren't as hurt as you were pretending to be. But you also kind of played yourself a little there. <laughs> like you're stuck in the you a you got yourself stuck in really deep in a bad standing guillotine, and then you let you, your arm drop and go limp. And did the referee should the referee have grabbed your arm and tested it? Yeah, yeah, sure. Should he not have jumped in and just waved it off immediately there? Possibly not. But. You kind of played yourself. You you know. Especially too, I gotta say this too. Cause I know, you know, the moment Chires lets go of the sub, Lacerda's popping up and he's like, No, I'm fine. And it's like, okay, but you could have actually gone out and you wouldn't know it. Because we like how many times have we seen fighters get tech subbed and then they wake up and they're like, What happened? True. You know, if he went unconscious in there, he doesn't know. He's not the he's not the the person to judge that. You know, and I'm I'm just kind of having this thought as I'm sitting here. You know, I didn't think it through because you know, like I said, when you started talking about this, I said I hey, should have checked his arm. It, it's very possible that Lacerda could have played us all in the sense that he he felt he was going out, and what he could do is, oh, I could play possum here. They stop the fight, and as soon as they stop the fight, I come to and say, no, 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 I was fine. It, yeah, I'm not going to go that deep down the conspiracy rabbit hole. I, I, I don't – believe me, in the middle of a yeah. fight, I don't think that that's what happened. No. But, you know, I mean, maybe – I'm just saying What that, I'm getting at is give the referee a little bit more credit than uh, what I, I did to, uh, initially to start. Yeah, um, I – I, I, I think the ref could have done better here. I'm not going to say that. Yeah. He didn't make a mistake at all. But I, you know, yeah. Dominic Cruz has to, he, he's got to like get his foot off the gas a little here because refing is difficult. And if a guy is in a submission and you're trying to make sure that they don't get hurt, and they go, you see them go, like we've seen, we saw that fight where the guy is getting choked and he's unconscious for like 30 seconds and the ref is just standing there jerking himself off. And then the guy's to the point that his opponent has to switch to an arm bar and the guy woke up in the arm bar. Yeah. yeah. Like we, we have seen hilariously awful refing in submission attempts before too. I'm glad they did the no contest. I do think the ref screwed it up. 
but at the same time, these like there has there's always going to be this margin of error in combat sports. Yes. Always. Yes, and uh, two points uh, before we close. Number one, a referee's job is to watch out for the safety of the fighters. So in that sense, he did do that. I will grant him that. And number two, if you ask Dominic Cruz, the smartest man in the world is Dominic Cruz. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and if you ask Dominic, if you ask every fighter, they always just say, let me die in there. And it's just like, <laughs> I don't want to see that. I have no interest in watching you die on TV. That is not the reason anybody is watching this sport is to watch somebody get killed. That is yeah. not what anybody wants. It's not what you're getting paid for. It's not what you're training to do even, you know, like we don't, nobody wants to see you die and we should be not subject to that just because your ego would be, won't be soothed otherwise. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm not gonna say that the ref didn't screw up, but it, it this to me was just like your, this is your margin of error in MMA. Yeah. yeah, no, he he did screw up, but it's not as egregious as it was made out to be on the yeah. broadcast. Yeah. All right. That brings us to a woman's flyweight bout: Tracy Cortez, Jasmine Jasudavicius, and uh. Solid fight for Cortez. Not a immediate, oh my God, this woman is a future title contender kind of fight from her. But Jasuda Vicius has proven that she's a much tougher out than people were ready to give her credit for when she first got to the UFC. So beating Jasuda Vicius is still a solid, hey, you you went out there and you did what like Miranda Maverick couldn't, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- there were times where uh, Cortez, I felt, looked clunky. Um, yeah, you know, she still has some progress to make on the striking because uh, they were talking about how fantastic she looked. I'm like, well, she looked better than what she has looked before, but I, I wouldn't say that she looked great. Yeah, she is. She's a very indecisive striker for, right now. Still, she, you know, she does a lot of looking and waiting and problem solving and trying to be an opportunist as a striker and the technical depth isn't there when she strikes her chin flies up in the air you know when she has to move backwards she doesn't really have any immediate response to pressure so all of the waiting that she does and all of the trying to be selective that she does is really just giving her opponents time to do damage to her. And, you know, it's just the reason that just Vicius was able to, I felt pretty clearly win around. I don't think that Cortez won all, all three rounds as two judges did, but the reason just Vicius was able to win around was just because she is much more willing to just be like, Oh, you know what I got to do? I got to bite down regularly and wade into the pocket and throw combinations and I got to stay aggressive and I got to stay on the front foot and I got to make things happen because I'm not going to, I'm not going to beat most women trying to be fast and slick. And she does it well. And it's like I said, it's a testament to Cortez and to her athletic gifts and all that, that she was able to sit down in round three and meet Jesuda Vicius's pressure with hard counters that were bigger and better than what Jesuda Vicius could land. And steered the round, steered the fight back into her, in, into her favor. But Cortez definitely needs to, her game needs to sharpen up. This was, this was a fine display, but it was, still felt like the display of a prospect that is more raw than they necessarily could be at this stage in their career. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, like I, like I said, uh, I feel like kind of like uh, they did with the way the referee stepped in. Uh, in the previous fight, they they overplayed how well Cortez looked. I mean, like I said, yeah. solid win, um, especially good given that she has had such a long layoff. Yep. Um, but you know, for for all the talk that everybody, I've heard some. I shouldn't say everybody, but I've heard some say that she's a future title contender. I'm I'm still not sold on that. I, I will acknowledge that the the talent is there for that. But uh, I think the thing that she needs more than anything at this point is just consistently getting into the cage 
Yeah. Because uh, the only thing that's been consistent is that she fights once a year. Stick her in there with like Natalia or Karini Silva, one of them, and you know somebody who's really dangerous. That's that's what it's time to see Cortez face is, you know, somebody who is a really actually dangerous striker and good athlete, and see what happens. You know, let her yeah. test it out because. Yeah. You know, the, the talent is there. Cortez, like, you look at her record, even going back pre-UFC, and she's got, like, a win over Aaron Blanchfield, a win over, <laughs> yeah, a win over Maria Agapova. You know, she's got a good, she's got a good record. She's got good skill. It just, uh, the, the slowdown in her career has really kind of kept her from feeling like her game really clicks at a level that could contend yet. Yeah. So, all right. Otherwise, lightweight bout, Charlie Campbell, Alex Reyes, and um, yeah, we look, it's great that Alex Reyes got himself physically back to this point that he could compete in the octagon again to go from being nearly paralyzed or basically paralyzed mm-hmm. all the way to fighting again to in fight shape and to in, capable of holding a fight camp and getting through a fight camp is great. I do not want to see a man who suffered that kind of neck injury get knocked out again. I'm sorry. Like, it does yeah. not give me any good feelings. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm 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 with you 100 percent there. I, I I wasn't. I, I okay, it's a good story, like you said. Yeah. Six years gone by. He's finally able to make it back into the cage, and he. He doesn't look terrible, you know. He can go through the motions and stuff like that. But like you said, that that was a violent finish. This is somebody who and he got hit a t- everything that came at him hit him really yeah. hard and clean. So it's the second fight in the UFC, and it's the second time that that happened. He just got bowled over by by Mike Perry six years ago, and now he's getting bowled over by Charlie Campbell. Yeah, so, and you know it has to be said too, like his. His pre-UFC record was very can-heavy, you know. Yeah. yeah. He had a he had a couple of good fights in Gladiator Challenge that he won via very hard-fought late submissions against re- regional veterans. But everything before that was, in fact, Gladiator Challenge level can crushing. And that showed when he got to the UFC the first time. And it's still, you know, he's out there and it's just still looks like a fighter who never really actually learned to defend himself. Mm -hmm. And coming off of a huge neck injury, I just, you know, he doesn't have to quit, but I don't want to watch it. (laughs) Yeah, um, he he shouldn't be fighting at this level as a better No. Yeah. All right. And finally, uh, Josephine Knudsen, Knudsen against Marnik Mann. And uh, speaking of fighters that are not ready to fight at this level, Marnik Mann has, is absent of an MMA game. There's, there's just no, there's no offensive part of her skill set. And Knutson Knutson just went out there and treated her like a, a heavy bag for three rounds. Yeah. So not a surprise. Great fight from Knutson. Should have finished her, honestly. Could have been could have been more one-sided. But she's clearly at that point in her career where she's she's been trained to do all things. So it's the strikes lead to the clinch, the clinch leads to the takedown, rinse and repeat. Um but had she just kept the pocket and kept throwing heavy, heavy shots at demand, she would have put her out. Yeah. Uh, honestly, I'm, I'm not even all that upset with her for, for not getting the finish. Cause sure. hell she, she scored a 30, 24 scorecard. Yeah. 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 Three, 10, eight rounds. It was a perfect fight from Knutson. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I kind of feel like arguing, well, we see finishes on pretty much every card. 
Sure. How sure. often do we see a ten or a, or a thirty twenty four? So uh, you know she's got something up on plenty of uh, fighters that have held titles. They've never scored a thirty twenty four in a fight. So good on her. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to wrap things up and we're going to jump over and do just a little bit of bonus content for our Substack subscribers. So if you're among them, stay tuned. If you're not, then it's time to sign up. What are you doing, man? You got to, you know, help us out here, spread the word, keep us in business, all that good stuff. To access the bonus content of this show, you must be a paid subscriber. To do that, go to bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com and subscribe today. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Podcast production. Subscribe at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com. Give us your email and receive notifications when your favorite shows drop straight into your inbox. We're also found on a wide variety of podcast outlets. Just search for Bloody Elbow Podcast and you will get new shows throughout the week, including the MMA Bunker and MMA Tete-a-Tete shows with Kid Nate, the Level Change Podcast, the Hey Not the Face Podcast, the MMA Vivisection Main Card and Prelims UFC Preview Shows, the Sixth Round Post Fight Show, the Show Money Podcast, and the MMA Depressed Us. <laughs>